Hey, my name is Eric Dank, podcast editor for GPPR. I sat down with the senior staff for a freewheeling conversation on all that's gone on this semester and the theme of the spring edition, uncertainty. We recorded shortly after Thanksgiving, so Doug Jones's victory in the Alabama Senate race and the announcement of the new GU fellows hadn't happened yet, so unfortunately we weren't able to discuss all of that. However, uh, I think we had a good conversation, and thank you for listening. I hope you, I hope you enjoy. It's uh, Disraeli Smith. Uh, I'm here with some of the senior staff. We have Jake, Catherine, and Olivia. Uh, and then we have uh, Eric out here helping us, you know, record audio. So, you know, it's our first senior staff podcast of the year here on the GPPR podcast. And we're just here to just talk about, you know, our theme uh, for the spring and some of the things that we've learned over the semester and how politics are going and life at McCourt and whatever else we decide to talk about. So hope you guys enjoy, um, and I'll just tee it off. I uh, wanted to get you guys' thoughts on our spring thing. You know, it's uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty as we're talking. You know, tax reforms in the air. Mm-hmm. You know, immigration is everywhere and nowhere. You know, Chuck and Nancy, you know, or Chuck and Nancy. And not showing up to meetings. And not showing up to meetings. North Korea is shooting missiles. But Trump's handling it. But Trump's handling it all. Um, you know, what do you guys think about, you know, the state of affairs in the world and where we are today? Not looking good. One thing that comes to mind for me is not just the, you know, the plain existence of uncertainty. Oh, we don't know what's happening here. We don't know what's happening there. But something I think that really compounds the, the impact of it is just like how fast everything's coming. You know, the headlines, breaking news every day is just like a constant whirlwind so I think even just like the sheer speed at which we're flying through these topics um, is is dizzying in and of itself and almost creates more uncertainty because today we're talking about you know meetings with President Trump and North Korea or whatever else but you know I almost forgot that we were just dealing with like massive immigration uncertainty like a mere mm-hmm. like month ago or or who even knows so I, I almost wonder what's the impact of like how fast we're dealing with these things and, and what's falling through the cracks in the, in the midst of everything. Yeah, or the things we're not dealing with. You know, I, I follow a guy on Twitter who talks about, you know, it's day, whatever it is, we'll call it 60-something, that CHIP, you know, has, you know, the children's health care, yeah, yeah. you know, has not been renewed by Congress. And, you know, there's no rush to you know, renew CHIP. And, like, are yeah. we really, really going to take away health care from poor kids? You know, and, and it just seems like it, we're in that 24 minute, as you know, some of the fellows have talked about, 24 minutes seems like 24 second news cycle, mm-hmm. and everything kind of falls in the cracks. Definitely, yeah. And like, well, the government shut down on December 8th, and you know, the first time that's ever happened with the one party in control of all three branches of government, um, which is kind of amazing. Uh, I think you know, not only just the uncertainty, but kind of playing back to the theme we had last year of just disruption, like all rules. Are being broken. All bets are off, essentially. Even today, with you know the the CFPB, uh, you know appointment, and it's pretty clear in the law that the person who should be taking over is the deputy. Uh, and yet here we are, where a court judge, you know, ruled that actually Mick Mulvaney can can be it, you know, the director. And so again, it's just, I think it's just, you know, 
again, the speed to at which all of this is happening, the uncertainty, I mean, I think, you know, tax reform, I just saw a tweet from GU Politics that said 100% certainty, the panelists said it was 100% certainty that it will get passed. But, you know, then there's also incredible uncertainty around DACA and the immigration fight and the government shutdown and what Democrats are going to do. And, um, you know, of course, what Republicans are going to do is always up in the air. I, I, I wonder if th there's so I, I definitely agree that there's the national attention span has greatly diminished. And we can argue about what kind of the causes and the effects of that are. But I'm, I'm curious and I've, I've been every time I've, I've seen through left-leaning friends of mine, um, and, I, and you know, even at the, um, I don't know if you guys were at the uh, the first protest, like the Women's March protest, all the signs that were encouraging the impeachment of Trump, and I think people need to step back and remember that if, like, take Trump away and you still have a very conservative, uh, ideologically bent administration that he's built around him, you can start it with Mike Pence. Do you think that the uncertainty and kind of like the breakneck speed is only exasperated and we're only really focusing on it right now because of Trump and his kind of style? Or like if they like take Trump away and we're still gonna have the same conversations about DACA, about immigration, about chip. But do you think it's just like more like just like, like really disencouraging just because there is someone as neurotic and kind of, you know, Absolutely terrifying in uh, in, a, in a source of yeah and rule breaking. So I'm just wondering like there's definitely like a weird dynamic there between us like being terrified, but also like is the cause Trump or is is it like more of like a societal kind of change? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Um, I think the thing is is that you know there's been several tweets that you know if Hillary was president, you know and got you know a reasonable budget, hmm. you know got immigration reform and some type of DACA permanent fix and Obamacare was still on the books, you know, even if the with the Republicans maintaining the House and the Senate, you take that as a win year one, mm -hmm. you know? And so from a legislative standpoint, I think it's because I think Trump, I think legislatively Trump's made two political errors. I think number one, not focusing on something that would actually bridge the country together first, infrastructure a reasonable mm -hmm. tax reform bill because this bill sucks mm -hmm. like it yep. fundamentally it is a great corporate tax cut and it is horrible for the individuals who make under five hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars um you know it is horrible for middle class individuals it is a redistribution of wealth from low income to higher income and corporations. And you can see it by the Senate with the calculation of the individual tax cuts will be temporary, but the corporate tax cuts will be permanent, and all that is ridiculous. If you, you know, I think if you had been something more reasonable, you don't see this push. I think the other thing is, is that, quite frankly, no one knows what Trump is gonna do but Trump. Like he could wake up one day and say, you know what? Forget North Korea, I'm just gonna go on the missile. Go on the nuclear football. No one would. Mm -hmm. No one would know. He announced his policy on Twitter. You know yeah. the military thing banning uh, transgenders uh, in the military surprised the defense secretary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because he announced it on Twitter. Like the Joint Chiefs of the Joint Chief of Staff is coming out saying, eh, "That's not policy." <laughs> you know, on you know to something the president announced on Twitter. Yeah. I think it's. I think we are, have not really reckoned with the fact that we have a president who wants to legislate uh, in 24 minutes 
and has no willingness to understand that Washington does not move in 24 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, and is not reacting and adjusting himself to that. And I think that's causing more of this than anything else. But I think also, like, I mean, Congress is mostly to blame for that, too. I mean, they have not really done any sort of the leadership and, you know, the congressional leadership has not really done anything <laughs> to educate Trump sort of on the the legislative hurdles that exist in Washington. And I think what we're seeing in terms of the majority of the policy kind of crises today is totally a, a function of a shifting Republican Party in terms of their platform, but also a total lack of congressional leadership in terms of standing up for, you know, not only kind of what's morally right, but also what even like two years ago would never have been part of the Republican Party platform and all of a sudden is getting incorporated into it. Um, I mean, not so much on the tax piece, but I think in in so many ways, you know, we're just seeing such a a shift in ideological kind of stances. And I think that is the Trump effect. Like these Republican, you know, members of Congress don't want to be uh, outside too outside of the base, which now is definitely Trump supporters. But you know the political the policy crises that we're seeing here is really stems from Congress, um, and their total disregard for lack of order of regular order, um, you know, not running things through the committees mm-hmm. anymore, not having substantive policy debates. I mean, this is where Congress used to be the arena in which we had substantive policy debates. And instead, we're disregarding the CBO, you know, we're uh, throwing out any and all even nonpartisan or, you know, uh, studies related to tax reform or the health care bill. Um, and that, I mean, that total disregard for facts um, is alarming in many ways. And I think certainly is a Trump effect, but I think I, I had hoped for better from our congressional leaders as well, who have been in positions of power and who know better from a policy perspective and have, for and on both sides of the aisle and have and you know <coughs> have experience. I think exactly. I mean, I I, of course, to yes. name names, McConnell. Yeah. Of, yeah. Absolutely. I expect you better. I think yeah. somewhat cynically, Trump has almost created like a or the Trump effect is more of like a policy window for these fringe, you know. Leaders or French policy rep- process. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for, like, for these like French thinkers, it's not that um, DACA or the issue with the CFPB is new necessarily, or that you know all of a sudden people want to um, think about that in, in in a way that's maybe not beneficial for consumers. People have been resisting CFPB for years. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's Before just it that existed. what you're saying now <laughs> yeah. is that you know the mainstream way of like what we thought you know, how, how we thought Congress worked or what that um, purpose was is, is being, you know, disrupted, like we talked about last year. And, and the part where the uncertainty comes in is, well, so what are the rules of the game now? What can we expect now that, like, what we thought could never be reasonable that they would do all of this um, or try to do all of these things um, now is becoming the daily headlines. Like, we're dealing with this constantly. Is there anything, so we're a year and roughly a month after the election in that time frame, is there anything that's been worse than you anticipated? And to be fair, is there anything that hasn't been as worse that you thought would have been an issue a year and a month ago? I thought, I think Trump's Twitter usage has been worse than I expected. I didn't think he'd get off Twitter. But the I, nuclear holocaust wasn't as bad as he thought it was going to be. I also <laughs> didn't think he would be picking fights with the NFL mm-hmm. and 
picking fights with LeVar Ball and picking fights with, you know, random, you know, people. Like, he was picking fights with Hollywood, but this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's, some of it's just utterly ridiculous. Like, the tweet the other day about, let's do a fake news pageant, you know, excluding Fox. Right. Like, CNN is worthless international. You know, there are, our international media correspondents you know, depend on, you know, the credibility of the United States, you know, and I saw that the Libyan government basically dismissed CNN's report because Trump said CNN Mm -hmm. lies, international lies. So they just dismissed the report on site. I think that has been worse than I think anyone could have reasonably expected, even coming out of the campaign, because you thought, you know, Trump, I won. And so, and I don't think he's going to run again. Um, but I want it. Hot take. I don't I don't think he's gonna run again. Um, wow. but you know, I think he thinks differently. I don't, wow. I don't think he, he changes his mind when he wakes up every day. Yeah, I don't think he does. I think he pulls an LBJ. Huh. I think he realizes, you know, that he is Would that be now more we might be in World War North Korea. Yeah. Um, yeah. LBJ gracefully bowed out. But I think he pulls an LBJ and doesn't run. In 2020, you know, but I think that's been worse. Um, I think the other thing is, like I said earlier, I think it was a mistake not to start with something that would bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I get why he started with healthcare, but as someone who does not understand policy and recognizes he doesn't understand policy, why not start with something he gets? And I think he gets two things: he gets infrastructure mm-hmm. and he gets taxes. Mm-hmm. He gets taxes from the Republican standpoint because he he says he pays too well, much he gets, and he wants a tax cut. He understands the tax cut and he understands building stuff. You know, and I'm surprised that he didn't start with one of those two things. And I'm surprised that even a year from now, you know, the rumor is the next policy is welfare. Like, are we not going to come back to infrastructure? And why didn't you start with infrastructure? Yeah. Like, yeah. if you started. Infrastructure week was an object failure. Yeah. No, it was an object failure. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. That was an infrastructure week. <laughs> it was a short week. <laughs> and I think the other thing is, is that you talked a little bit earlier about he surrounded himself with a conservative staff. And I think that talent is going to leave. You know, there's been well, a lot it was of, it was already a a, a staff that had lost yeah. its best and brightest because mm-hmm. a, a lot of those like really experienced holdovers from the Reagan and the Bush one, yeah. Bush two, they they were never Trumpers from the beginning. Yeah. So I mean, they, they were you know taking the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. So, no offense. I mean, you got kids running the White House. You know, you have with, with no, no policy experience. with no policy experience with limited supervision. Mm-hmm. And the adults in the room have no policy experience, is a four-star general, and is a more conservative general than I think anyone ever knew as a four-star general, you know, is basically the adults in the room, you know. So when Mick Mulvaney, no offense to him, who four years ago, you know, was a tea party or a tea party is in the you know, Freedom Caucus and was a backbench, you know, House member is, you know, a senior staffer who commands respect on Meet the Press. And two jobs. And he's two jobs. Has two agencies. two agencies. Has two jobs and working six days a week and a five-day week. That's like 11 Blackberries. You know, (laughs) it is is like important. Like if somebody takes out Mick Mulvaney, Trump's in trouble. Yeah. That's where we are right now. Well, it's funny. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I think to, to continue on the question of, you know, what was the most surprising, or have you been surprised? Mm-hmm. I think the, again, the sort of utter disregard for the, the um, 
respect of the office um, is what has surprised me the most. I think um, I had a lot of hope that maybe he would uh, tamper, you know, his or temper his kind of um, remarks about the media or not pick fights with civilians on Twitter, as you were mentioning, and things like that, because he's president of the United States. Um, but clearly that title and the responsibility that goes with it and the history of it means very, very little. Um, and I think that that, I mean, is uh, concerning, um, you know, just for like, the future, I guess. And, and I think that that's, that's been just, I think, the most surprising thing. I really, I really had hoped that maybe the gravity of the office would have an impact on him in any way. Um, and it's it's clear that it's not really. Um, and so that's, I think, maybe the most surprising. Everything else, I mean, I'm dismayed but not surprised by in terms of the climate change, um, you know, the attack on the EPA and obviously the immigration issue. These things are not surprising to me because, I, I mean, more or less he has sort of kept his promises um, from his campaign. Um, but I had hoped that maybe his attacks on sort of the media and his sort of lowbrow um, you know, comments would subside, and they and they clearly happen. So. For me, for me, that's not that's been one of the least surprising really? things because he's a he's a public figure, he's a personality, he's on The Apprentice. Like that is what he knows, and that's who I he is. Had I high hopes, and I guess I was I think, foolish and naive. And, and I think, <laughs> but I think there's like something deeper there because I tend to think or wonder, speculate about you know that. That's his strategy. It's not just a flippant, like, uncontrollable, impulsive thing. And maybe it is to an extent, but that's also, I think, a strategy that, um, like, it would be reasonable to think that some people would try to steer him away from. But maybe other people would say, wait, this is actually working in a way. And I think he's actually used it to his benefit. When we think, you know, beyond the, the walls here at Old North and on Georgetown, like, it's been effective with some of his supporters. And that's one thing I would like to ask is, like, a year and a month later, like, mm -hmm. what are the ongoing perceptions among Trump supporters of how well he's done um, from from more of a sympathetic and supportive position? Like, do they see these tweets um, as something that, like, are, I guess what I'm really thinking is, are they effective strategies to distract people and keep them involved in the, you know, the the drama of it all? Meanwhile, like, agencies are actually making changes that are very serious and very worrisome and and paying attention to um, energy like he's you know things have gone pretty much as planned or as expected within with energy in some ways surprising because doe is still keeping funding for certain renewable projects and and that but mostly like epa's website totally censored totally sanitized mm -hmm. from anything that like hints of climate change and FERC and everyone like they're all gearing up to um basically require that you know, coal becomes more of a um, relied upon energy resource for resiliency reasons. So, like, yeah. agencies are doing work that is substantive, and Trump is is the talking head and the distractor. And I wonder how deliberate that is. You know, how how that's actually being used as as a as a tool. Kind of to that point, I've been wondering a lot about whether how like how well the strategy or not strategy of this distracting and and ridiculous statements and it's particular, you know, picking fights with celebrities or the NFL, whatnot, um, if it's something that will transfer to another candidate or some, if 2020, 2024, if uh, presidential candidates 
gubernatorial candidates, House members, Senate members are going to sort of try to copycat the strategy on how effective it might be or if it's particularly unique to him. And that's the well, answer. I think it is unique. And you look at Virginia, for example, yeah. where um, Gillespie, for all intents and purposes, tried to run in the Trump playbook and not be Trump and lost bad. I think, you know, most candidates cannot be Trump. Um, I think that they do not have the populist appeal, but not necessarily the populist appeal. I think they don't have the uh, reality appeal that Trump has. You know, he made his name on, you know, and money being rich and bravado and you're fired and all of those things. You know, and the one thing that you respect, you know, from Trump is that he talks like a, you know, somebody who might be sitting in the back of, you know, back in your, you know, backyard shooting the breeze with you, mm -hmm. you know, and that related to people. Uh, I think from that aspect, you may be able to copy and be more relatable. And I think Democrats need to be more relatable. I think they need to be more personable, I think, you know, and feel warm, you know, but people bought the Trump's message because it sounded like, you know, he struck the nerve of they're leaving you behind. And I'm not gonna leave you behind. Like that's that's all this cold messaging is. That's yeah. all the you know let's back away from globalization is. That's all you know climate change is fake news. You know all of that all of that all you have to that end, it is all distraction. And I think Politico does a series like every week where they say five things you didn't notice the Trump administration did. And it's a really good read in terms of to your point, Olivia, the rules that agencies are making um, and you know the stuff that is happening very underneath not being reported by the Washington Washington Post and the New York Times. The Washington Times is a paper. Let our readers not know. Faithful readers. <laughs> you know, because because of the fact that, you know, it we're being distracted by the, the big things. You yeah. know, and the, the, there I, is work going on. I, I don't know. I mean the, the, the winning the gubernatorial race in Virginia and winning a national election when, which was for years required skills that are not at all related to the actual task of the office. It's a, it's, it's pageantry. I, I think, I think there's going to be a move towards some type of mirroring in the future. I mean, I don't think you'll ever get the braggadocio and the, um, the, the antics and the overt sexism and populism and racism of a Trump candidate. But I think you will see increase. I think there will be elements copied. I, I think like like yes, Twitter and the constant communication and actually making policies is a disastrous route. But I think it's it's a it's a method of communication that is instantaneous. I think that people see it as uh, something that their neighbor could do, so they kind of see it as more personable. Um, and I I think that you I mean you already saw with the evolution with the the Obama campaign in two thousand eight where they they really graphs upon social media as a thing to kind of touch upon younger voters especially. So I think I think there is going to be elements of of Trump-esque characteristics in future. And if they will be successful, I have no idea. I have, a, I have a quick question just to kind of tie into Catherine's earlier point. Do you think that, I mean, I agree with you. I think that's kind of, that goes beyond the scope of just Trump's personality mm -hmm. and his impact, but just like broader changes and the disruption of technology and social media, but like Catherine mentioned earlier about the sanctity of the office being um, 
you know, lessened because of these antics and because of this behavior, and in some sense because of the, the delivery of the message, not just the message itself. Right. Do you think this transition to a world where, you know, policies made via Twitter or communications happening, do you think, you know, step back from the content a little bit, but what about just the packaging? Do you think that is, um, you know, in itself affecting the, the dignity or the sanctity of the officer? Like, how is that changing the way we, like, conceive of, of these positions and, and how, you know, people might relate to leaders. Do you think, you know, is there even room for seeing as that improving it in, in some way? I mean, it's a it's a weird shift to yeah, like process. I, I think the office of the presidency. Uh, I agree that Trump has made, you know, the office of the presidency a second rate locale citizen, mm -hmm. it seems like. Um, I also think that and what it is is is, is that he has diminished the role of the U.S. president on the world stage. Mm -hmm. We are very deferential right now to China right. on, on several issues. We're deferring to Putin in uh, Syria. We're behind in letting the EU lead on several things. Mm -hmm. you, one could argue, you know, Merkel is the most powerful yeah, leader in the world. she's right the leader now, of the free world. That she's the leader of the free world, supported by uh, the French guy. Um, Macron. Macron, thank you. Um, with and you have, uh, and I'm not even gonna try the Chinese guy, but you have the Chinese president. Xi Jinping. Thank you. The Congress put him on the front page of yeah. the world's most powerful man and irked Trump. And, I, and it irked him, and I don't disagree with it because he's consolidating power, unlike any Chinese leader has since Mao. You know, and and the smart leaders are taking advantage of this. Like they're correct. taking advantage of the weakening of the U.S. presidency. Correct. And if they're smart, they're gonna consolidate their power and and elevate themselves on the world exactly. stage, like you said. And so I think a lot of people are gonna play play this game. Oh, yeah. I, I worry. I don't think that it is a worry today. I do think if he wins re-election, that the U.S. in 2024 is a completely diminished state. Uh, than it was eight years ago. That 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 leads me to where I, I kind of wanted to transition this a bit. Let's let's talk about the, the opposition party, the, the Democrats. They're they're in an interesting place. Um, John Conyers, Al Franken, obviously having their own revelations. Al Franken was seen as a rising star. John Conyers, of course, was a bedrock. Um, the longest serving member. Yeah, he's longest current, current longest. Current. Yeah. 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 Chair of the Judiciary Committee. Where where do you see and. and you can say there's positives in their resilience in the minority, and some will say it's even healthy for a party every now and then to go into the minority, kind of regenerate their base. Um, where do you see them going next? So that's not not speaking like who's going to run in 2020, but what do, what do you see in like the immediate future can for I just the make, Democrats? Can I just make a note prior that uh, sexual harassment is not a partisan issue, by the way? So it is not. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, these are just like men being unfortunately disgusting and obviously can happen on both Republican and Democratic side. That's all I'm going to say about that. With, with that disclaimer, <laughs> much needed. Um, I, I think to, to Since just, you mentioned Franken. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, to, your, yeah, yeah. yeah to your question, I think a couple of things. I think the Democratic Party should find candidates who can who focus on messaging. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I think the key failure in 2016 was we're going to depend on data instead of messaging. Um, we, we, you know, we can just debate whether the election was stolen. We can debate, you know, I think it's not a debate that there was foreign influence and that that foreign power had one particular leaning. Um, you know, but setting all of that aside, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the party lost, couldn't, had no core message other than he's an idiot and he's, gonna, he's evil. 
You know, and I think that where they're going to have to go is to actual messaging. I think they failed their messaging in 2017. And you can t- that bores out at the national level. It doesn't bore out at the local grassroots where you see a lot of energy, you see a lot of in the protests and the minorities, and you see a lot of people, you know, running for local office because they're interested in, in, in getting involved because they actually have a message. But the Democratic Party does not have a national message. They can't race. The DNC has like $4 million on hand compared to like, 45 or something for the RNC, that's because there's no national message and your national leaders are, you know, a a former speaker of the House minority leader who somehow is still statistically significant in close races. Um, Not to say that she is a causal effect, um, but that it is born not to be significant in close races. And a Senate minority leader who up until a couple of years ago, you know, was a backbench, you know, if you ask the average Democrat, they don't know Chuck Schumer, you know, if you ask the average Democrat, who, who's the national Democrat you know, they're probably going to say Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. And he's not even a Democrat. And Bernie's not even a Democrat. <laughs> he's an independent who wants to run, who happens to be a populist socialist, you know, so... You know, I think that is where the party needs to go. It has to develop a message at the national level to get back to where it wants to get to. Bernie kind of reminds me of what I think is a big portion of uncertainty in the Democratic Party is this sort of starting of a division between the Bernie type wing and even to some extent the Elizabeth Warren type wing to more Hillary and more Mm -hmm. like moderate Democrat, establishment Democrat, and how that's going to play itself out, particularly in opposition. And there's been a lot of pieces written uh, about, like, is the Democratic Party having a Tea Party type movement uh, in the opposition? So that's something that I think that we'll definitely have to watch how that plays out in the in the coming years. And, you know, before the Democratic Party can have people who are able to message things, they're going to have to decide what that message is going to be and how that's going to play out between those two sort of uh, separate caucuses yeah. within the party. And I mean, I, I think that Bernie Sanders is going to run again in 2020 and he's going to be the front runner. And that's... Uh, Hot take number two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, wow. he's... And he's not a Democrat. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah, think I that that's how it's going to end up. And I mean, I think it's because he has... Um, I was looking up the Democrats' um, agenda that they came out with in January, or sorry, in July of this year. Um, a better deal, better jobs, better wages, better future. And it's like, that is bland. Uh, and it means nothing. And, you know, the thing that Bernie Sanders, for all of his flaws, I mean, he has a way better just like message and tagline than the current Democratic Party does. Um, and the Democrats are going to have to really. Uh, figure out what to do with a potential front runner for the presidency that is not actually a member of their own party, but who will be ostensibly running under their well, own caucus. So I mean that's okay. I mean that's my hot take. That, yeah, that, that, that's a, it's a I think that right he's out of the broiler hot take. He's a Blaming. he'll be he's five years older than Donald I just, Trump. I know I he's know that. He's seventy six. But be, he's going to run again. He he'll is, be eighty. He is definitely running. He's, he's definitely running again. He's running. Barring any major medical. Barring any major medical. <laughs> I mean, issues, he's, he's running. running. He's running. Right in the room. I mean, he like, is. He's old, but he's running. Donald Trump was the oldest yeah. nominee, not to mention the winner, and he was well, seventy. Let's not get hung up on this. There, I think we'll see. You know, like it's yeah, it's a yeah. it's definitely a valid I mean, yeah. prediction. Just <laughs> throwing it out. But right? okay, okay, yeah. Away, away from the thing, I, I, yeah. I'm really interested in 
in the point Eric brought up. There, the and we we can have a complete you know, diagnosis of the 2016 election, looking at specific states. That's but there's a messaging there's a messaging issue that I think the Democrats are kind of missing um, in rural areas, which used to be their strong bay. The blue curtain, the blue wall, whatever it was referred to, it fell. And that needs to be addressed. And I don't think that's going to be addressed by a populist like Bernie Sanders or his messaging. I think it needs to be more specific um, I mean, and local. And I don't think that Nancy Pelosi caught a lot of flack for saying, and I think it was right after the election, that she wouldn't kick a Democrat out of the party for opposing abortion. And that kind of, and that, that's a very hot take. But I think that, that the, the virtue behind that is negotiation and having a flexible and I don't know if that's a good thing or not, having a flexibility within a party that can hold 320 million people in a country. And, and you know, that's the kind of the result of an increased partisan um, spectrum. So I think that's something that, that I'm not quite sure how to address or not, but it's something I think worth discussing. I think, okay. Well, I'm going to flip your question on the head, Matt. <laughs> Do you think a centrist candidate, Kasich and the Colorado governor, for example? Pick a mover. Yeah. You think if they ran, they win in today's climate? Well, not on his beard. No, not really. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean you can say that Hillary was a, a a centrist candidate, and she lost, but I think she was a flawed candidate Hillary, in a lot yeah. of ways. She was that the right candidate there. for the year. Yeah. And, she and there, she was on like yes, there was foreign yeah. intrusion, but it was also a lot of latent and not so latent also, sexism. People do not like to put the like, DNC. Like, yeah, I, I think any Democrat not named Bernie Sanders, not named Hillary Clinton, wins in twenty sixteen. I think I would have won. <laughs> And maybe yeah. I should. I mean, any. This is me no declaring my candidacy. Okay. Hot take number three. One thing I wonder about, too, is like um, with the messaging idea. One, so we're talking about uncertainty, just beating it to death, like we beat disruption to death last year. But I really worry about the, the capacity of people to really think about and, and ruminate over this, all of the uncertainty in the world. And one thing with, as far as messaging goes from candidates, one thing that Donald Trump tends to steer away from, I mean, in his single messages, maybe not over time, but like, you know, he speaks in no uncertain terms. He just calls it out, black or white, blanket statements. And that's something like for us policymakers or striving to be policymakers, um, thoughtful individuals like find very frustrating, right? You, know, right. you can't just say that. You can't just generalize and and that's not new to Donald Trump that's you know politics in, in a large way but that's one thing that like can sometimes I think be an effective strategy when you're messaging and, and you don't leave room for uncertainty and, and you drive a message and you stick to it and one thing I think the Democratic Party <laughs> suffers from is is allowing all of this room for like oh maybe this maybe that mm -hmm. or you know over here we can have this message and you know there's not there's not really like a we don't a have hard line stances there's like, no hard line yeah. stances and and yeah that's like enlightened or whatever and it's flexible and it's practical but that's not necessarily what's going to move people or inspiring. make people yeah or it's not going to build trust with your constituents mm -hmm. in a large degree so i think that's one thing that you know when we think about uncertainty like when does even talking about it become you know a, a barrier to mm -hmm. like actually making change because we need yeah. to get past that, right? I think that's right on. I mean, I think that, that traditionally the Democratic Party has been one that, you know, lays out these, you know, 100-point plans and, you know, these, how are you going to pay for it? And they go through all of their, you know, bullet points. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's just not how a lot of people think or really what, what they care about at the end of the day. And I think 
Um, you know, you were talking about like how the Democrats used to have a stronghold of sort of the rural areas, union workers, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but I think increasingly, you know, people in these areas see the Democratic Party not for their economic platform anymore, but for their social platform. And it's yeah. one that's alienating to them, mm -hmm. um, to a lot of these rural, you know, outside of the cities, they may, may not agree with, you know, our policies on gay marriage or on abortion rights or on any of these wedge issues that I think the Democratic Party is now painted in these broad strokes as being the party of those types of issues rather than the party of economic, you know, opportunity and inclusion, economic mm -hmm. inclusion, um, you know, and that's something that I think, I mean, um, Bernie did a better job at talking about. Um, again, it wasn't in a plan form and he didn't have a lot of plans of like, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for free college, all this stuff? But it was an inspiring message around what are the steps that we're, you know, that we're going to provide free healthcare or single payer, you know, and free education in order to get to a place where the next generation is going to be better off than their parents. And that's something mm -hmm. that the Democrats are not particularly good at messaging right now. And instead, you know, I think our messages are much more about some of these social issues that I think are alienating people outside of these urban areas. Yeah, I completely agree. I think right or wrong, the Democratic Party has taken the brunt of the, the pushback and pain for pushing, um, you know, further progression and inclusion. Right. You know, oh, in the yeah. country. Absolutely. You know, from an immigration perspective, from yeah. a social perspective, even from an economic perspective, you know, you look at, and some of that's perception. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go as random Billy in Arkansas, you know, in Iowa, for example, you know, he's not going to tell you there's a significant gap uh, in wages uh, amongst people. You know, he's going to tell you that the problem is, is that, you know, the Japanese are taking his job away. Mm -hmm. Not that there's, you know, significant infrastructural issues within the country that yeah. policymakers like, you know, potential policymakers like us see, and you don't want to solve for. Yeah. You know, but, you know, I, I think that's, you know, the party for, for right, better or worse, and in this case, it works, mm -hmm. you know, has taken the political hit, mm -hmm. you know, for pushing those issues when they were morally correct. Right. Yeah. Again, I would just yeah. highlight that the qualifications needed in the the standards for running for president have absolutely nothing to do with the responsibilities of the job. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's an interesting balance that you're, you're both touching on is how the Democrats should respond to these kind of breadbasket issues while also staying loyal to the progressive issues that's been like kind of uh, undergirding their positions for decades now, while these things like abortion rights um, the acceptance of uh, same-sex marriages, an increasing proportion of Americans are accepting these positions. So how do you kind of balance out ditching your base while trying, like, is it, it would it be overreacting for them to really focus on jobs while ditching these like, kind of progressive social so. issues? You think it's, it's, it's too reactive to a, like, a once in a millennia fluke so in Trump? You. I would tell you it shouldn't be, but look at the guys who protested Northam uh, when he won Virginia. You know, nine point win, and they're protesting the, um, you know, the, the victory speech because of some of the comments he made on sanctuary cities. I think a lot of people want to have it in, you know, my way or no way, and 
and this ain't Burger King, yo. You know, and, and I think that that people need to, um, you know, I think people fail to understand that. And I think we, you can't be. I somewhat agree. You can't be the party of everything, because if you are, you are for everything. You stand, you know, you stand for everything. You really stand for nothing. You know, and you should have some principles, and you should have some morals, and you should have some standard positions and and those things. But you can be a Democrat, you know, and believe in proper tax reform, yeah. you know, and or balancing the budget, or balancing, or be against NAFTA, or or be against free trade, you know, yeah. be for fair trade, you know. And I think that you know, too often it's it's my way or no, you know, the highway, and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, I mean, I think like. You know, we've I think the Democratic Party has established sort of where they stand on a lot of these like more social issues, and and it's pretty clear. I think immigration you brought up, you know, the protesting around sanctuary cities. Immigration is such an interesting issue because, um, you know, not only of course it has sort of these social undertones and moral undertones, like what do we do with these children who have literally no no other home, but also it's so inextricably linked to the economy. Like people see immigrant, you know, they they just tie immigrants coming in, you know, as taking their jobs, which is, um, you know, statistically and factually completely incorrect, Um, you know, but that immigration is a proxy for a lot of the economic issues of, you know, not outsourcing, but Mm -hmm. like actually essentially going to bringing undocumented immigrants in to to take, quote unquote, take American jobs, which again is is factually incorrect. Mm -hmm. But um, there's just such a, an economic overtone to there as well as that social one. It's just that, which makes it so complicated. And I think why, you know, we will not see certainly not comprehensive immigration reform, but I'm, I'm really concerned that we may not even see a vote on the dream act, you know, in the next, in, in the time that Trump gave Congress to act. So. I, I also think he's going to punt that deadline anyway, <clears throat> if they, even if they don't act on time. I don't think he's going to kick him out. I mean, it would be wildly unpopular. Yeah. Like 80 or 90% of Americans believe that they should be able to stay. That's a, that's, so that's one of the things that I guess, I mean, thinking back to your earlier question, not to really rehash it, but like of the things that have like surprised us in, in this past year and some of the things that surprised me are the tendency of Trump to like make this bombastic move and then backtrack right. it work with the other side mm-hmm. like things like we just really haven't seen and then and like a lot of these moves like even with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau we sit back and think like wait these are actually popular things and the people who oh. are supporters of Trump or or you know very xenophobic or whatever, when they sit back and think of the changes that they, um, some of these people are wanting to make, they're, they realize like, oh wait, maybe this the, is not in my interest, so exactly. I wonder what is going to be the longer term impact leading up to the next election, like, are there going to be enough Trump supporters that realize, oh, maybe people are not acting in my best interest, and I think that's where the opportunity and where the real need for Democrats is to come in and say, you know, we can act in your interest, like, actually, like, you yeah. have concerns, and emotions are high, and we're going to respond to them, but what is what is that way where you can, like, you know, I feel like Democrats and, and, and people who are excited about, you know, the opposition, everyone, we're just too scatterbrained, and every issue that comes up, we're so passionate about it, but there's no real, like, oper- operational, operationalization yeah, yeah, yeah. of these efforts. I think it's a complete marketing failure on the side of Democrats to ex- kind of extol the benefits of the 
the institutions that are being jeopardized right now. Mm-hmm. And, and probably the, the one that most germanely comes to mind is in, in the skinny budget before, I think before January, Trump had put in a provision to take all the funding away from the Appalachian Regional Commission. Mm-hmm. And Appalachia overwhelmingly voted for Trump and they overwhelmingly voted for Obama. So this is, you can't even connect this directly to, to Trump. Long, this, this, yeah. is, this has been yeah. uh, uh, kind of a, the, the, the organization ARC is its only mission is to revitalize Appalachia and only Appalachia and is already a very rural area. So I'm, I'm, it's, it's just a complete marketing failure because they, they actually do think the EPA does important things. The CFPB, they do important things, but they're just not relayed. And that goes back before Trump, you know, honestly. Yeah. Like, it didn't, we didn't just wake up and everyone hated these agencies that are designed to protect yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's been a real, like, you know, there was a real ignorance leading up to this where, mm-hmm. where Democrats and, and people failed to, like, Make you know market that market yeah. these benefits or 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 stay in tune with constituents or mm-hmm. you really you know yeah. keep true to the the purpose of what they were yeah ostensibly serving totally this is like a fundamental part of the Republican Party is like overreaches of government mm-hmm. you know and and we you know when they have the opportunity they should roll that back and I mean that's just always been something where even if these agencies are operating within the best interests of the consumer or of Appalachia or of any other mm-hmm. places, um, you know, historically they want to roll these agencies back because, you know, what they see is often waste, fraud, and abuse. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, unfortunately maybe what that means is that they're not seeing the benefits of some of these programs, or if they are, they certainly don't know to attribute it to the government agencies yeah. You know that unfortunately are now getting zeroed out. Um, I think a lot about like the CDFI fund in the Treasury, which is you know a, a, obviously it's not been zeroed out because the president's budget actually doesn't mean anything, luckily. Um, but you know they wanted to zero that out, and essentially that makes loans to small businesses in underserved areas. You know, and it's like a lot of which are rural, a lot of which would have voted for Trump. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like these. Again, nothing, it doesn't make sense for the best interest, but again, I think you're right, it's a marketing, it, it's, a, it's a marketing failure, but also I think it's just a, a very deep-seated, um, you know, just ideological position that less government agencies are better, yeah. or the, the less government agencies, the better. Yeah, and I think that, that completely makes sense in just the direction that they've taken everything. Um, over the past, you know, eight Even the months. State Department. It's yeah. like State diplomats. Needs. Like we're getting rid of dip- we're getting rid of like embassy security. Yeah. Like it's crazy. Uh, none um, of this well, stuff I, makes a lot I of mean, sense. I mean, I have to yeah. say that some like I'm willing to sit down and talk about where it's valid that some agencies do overreach oh, or don't have enough oversight. And the Clinton administration did that a lot. They like yeah. figured out where that waste quote unquote waste right. product was. But the, the problem is it's become so polarized that the question is not about where can we reduce. It's just where can we just blatantly eliminate or just hijack and gut it from the inside out. I mean, the other and thing, that's been the strategy yeah. now. A lot of this too is like, I think, um, you know, the Budget Control Act puts such stringent yep. controls on discretionary spending that the the pool is just infinitesimally smaller now. And so now we have to, like, every agency is fighting for their lives essentially. And the Budget Control Act, I mean, if we follow it, like, it's getting even crazier how much smaller the budget is for discretionary programs, um, such that, like, and entitlement programs are growing to the point where, like, 
essentially if we were going to follow it, like we wouldn't be paying for any, like the discretionary part of the budget would be like completely cut out. Right. So it's like the pool, the the pie is getting smaller, and that just leads to, I think, just you know, a total toxicity around, you know, of course trying to find like areas to cut, but then also like agencies truly fighting for their for mm-hmm. their like existence too. Definitely. So. Yeah, and I think that leads us to our fun question, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, and obviously at Georgetown we have a politics institute, right? You know, we have GE Politics, and they do a lot of good events. And GE Politics are friends of the podcast. Uh, they help us. Friend out. of the pod. Friend of the pod. They help us source shout out content. Out so shout out to GE Politics. <laughs> shout out to Jenny, Hannah. We love you guys. Um, also, while we're here, shout out to the Baker Center. They're really supportive of the podcast as well. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, what would you guys think in the spring? You know, we have spring fellows coming. We interviewed all the fall fellows. Um, we even got asked questions, Jake and I, um, yeah. on one of the podcasts, which is actually pretty interesting. Didn't know I was going to have to defend Turn the table. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not prepared. Was not prepared. Yeah. Uh, Jose. Oh. Yeah, we, we were not prepared. We're yeah. yeah, and he, he's, a, he's an anchor. And, yeah, and you can you can just tell his, his skill and his adeptness at yeah. bouncing on his feet. He's an interviewer. Yeah. He should have expected it. He had us mesmerized and then asked us a question and we were like, uh yeah. yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and every every single interview has been amazing. And the podcast team has done a, a fantastic job. Really have. It, it's have. been it's it's such a pleasure to, to speak to these professionals in the field. But as as we're eagerly awaiting the twenty eighteen spring fall fellows. Who 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 spring fall? Oh, sorry, sorry. Twenty eighteen? Yeah, yeah. Losing it. Um, who who would be on your, your dream team? Of fellows, hmm. I, I have a, I have a few names, and I, I can start off with because I, I am I'm a podcast junkie, as I think most of our generation is. My number one would be John Dickerson. Okay. He's the host of Face the Nation. Hmm. He's also the uh, um, he's one of the co-hosts of Slate's Political Gab Fest. He is a presidential historian, and he does su- you you will never know what his position is, but he does such a fantastic job, and I think it, like if I could somehow instill upon the national ethos one personality, it would be John Dickerson. Mm. He's calm, cool, collected, and he diagnoses problems in a surgical manner. And it, 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 you can never tell what his partisan bent is because I don't think he really has one. He's just a, he's a very analytical fellow, and I think he would be a great addition. So, John, if you're listening, I know you are. <laughs> consider <that. laughs> if, if John doesn't agree, I would say Michael Barbaro from The Daily, just because his voice is sent from the heavens. It's uh, so yeah, just cool. It's really touching. Yeah. Yeah. He makes uh, me cry sometimes. I, I'd say, <laughs> I'd say third, if you think of like those type of people, Chuck Cotton. Okay. Uh, we have I, only journalists. No, I was going to have thrown in one, too. Why, why, why Chuck Cotton? Uh, well, I think one... Uh, I've always liked him. Last couple of years, just watching. When I do watch NBC, I usually watch Meet the Press. Um, I'm not a huge fan of their political coverage in general outside of Meet the Press. Um, I, I lean and watch NBC. Um, and in all honesty, um, if I'm going to watch it, um, I'm a huge. I've been, always been a Stephanopoulos fan. I don't understand why. Big George. Uh, I'm a big George fan. Um, yeah. But I like Chuck Todd. I think he's really cool. He tries to break things down mm-hmm. um, in terms of you know what it is, what it means. He understands enough history that he can actually have a conversation and he's 
he's fun because he's a huge, I follow him on Twitter, so he's a huge Hurricanes fan. So it's hilarious <laughs> when the Hurricanes are losing. Um, so it would be well-timed if they, you know, get to the national championship game and blow yeah. it so I can just talk cash. <laughs> um, but no, I think Chuck Todd actually is, you know, it probably going to be, you know, that guy for this generation because he's young. Mm-hmm. Great. You know, he'll be around a while. All right, I'm going to throw one more into the journalism category. I would say Mark Leibovich. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the New York Times Magazine uh, DC Bureau correspondent, DC correspondent. Um, he wrote This Town. If you haven't read it, it's a little outdated now because I think it was written in like 2012, but it is a, an incredible just account of what DC is actually like. Um, and he just has such a good pulse on the ecosystem of DC, and he actually wrote an update. Uh, for the magazine on this town in the time of Trump. Um, and I just would, I would love to hear his insights on just how DC as an entire like economy is changing because of Trump, not just the administration or Congress or the politics, but you know all of the, the, the total ecosystem that exists in this fair swamp. Uh, and I think he would have the best perspective uh, on sure. that. Yeah, and if you haven't read this town, I highly recommend it. I think the next category, uh, is sports um, or those type of people? Um, I'm gonna steal sports. Jake's. Yeah, Jake. The next name Jake got up here and he <laughs> spelled it. Why don't we have like social disruptor? Yeah, social disruptor. Let's go with that. Cause he spelled this man's name all wrong. Yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, no. so, Phonetically. I'm not gonna say how he spelled it, uh, but There's I think few. it would be great. Uh, and actually. Uh, most of us talking on the podcast are graduating in the spring, and we got to recommend graduation speakers. Uh, my graduation speaker recommendation was Colin Kaepernick. Uh, mm. uh, knowing that Georgetown, of course, not going to no. get Colin <laughs> <laughs> um, Jackie, if you're listening, go get Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Um, shoot a test. <laughs> I probably will get chewed out for that comment. Uh, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, just in the time we're living in and, you know, all he's gone through over the past, you know, 18 months. I think it'd be great to just get, you know, someone outside of policy, but is trying to implement and change policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that'd be an enlightening conversation in terms of social disruption and what does that really mean and how do you go about that in, in constructive ways, you know, because his protests, you know, while some people do disagree with him fundamentally, were constructive. Now, the problem is, is that what he was protesting for has gotten lost in the uproar of, you know, uh, the 45th president. Um, but, you know, I, yeah. I think that's... In, I think... Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Well, just because it, like, so it dovetails with that. Um, sorry. But uh, DeRay McKesson, I think, also would be a really interesting mm-hmm. person because he, he's been actually working quite a bit with Colin Kaepernick on the best ways to message his, you know, um, his sort of his protest and, yep. uh, and how to get that out there. And, and I think he's done a you know, really good job of sort of educating him and others, of course, on on the BLM movement, but also in general um, on these issues. So I would say, like, and I know he came to Georgetown actually pretty recently. Yeah, he was here. Yeah, so anyway, it just, I feel like just dovetailed into your suggestion, but sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I was just going to say, even if not Kaepernick or, or um, you know, somebody like that, um, just the idea of bringing in somebody for the fellows that is kind of outside this policy universe or outside the mainstream communications universe would be would be pretty powerful, especially in this moment, just because we've had a lot of um, mm-hmm. movement in, in, in that area, and um, I think it would be a useful, useful contribution. Jake, anybody? You know, I, I put him down just because I think he has a, a, I don't think he has much 
on this plate right now, but I think Elon Musk <laughs> would be a... He's like chilling right now. Yeah. He's, 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 he's got to just... We're doing him a favor. He's got to get the work. He just has... broke up with Amber Heard. He's like nothing. I'm, I think there's a, there's a small stipend involved that can get him like the cover of Rent. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's interesting. That I, I think it would be remiss to, to not focus on someone who kind of embodies the popular outrage that we heard. And, and I think the the perfect person who's like a home body or like at least was involved with a, a election really close last year was Corey Stewart. But of course, Stewart coming. He chaired the Virginia um, Trump campaign. He lost to Ed Gillespie yeah. in um, the vote narrowly. Who knows what would have happened if he would have won. Mm. Um, but I think he'd, he'd, be, he'd be interesting, um, like a counterbalance. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, I, I think kind of an issue and this is really getting off the tracks, but something I kind of, you know, being on a college campus and inevitably some of our classes touch on free campus speech. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a, an issue with that, um, that, that I fundamentally take a, uh, a stance against is while we, we should never elevate hatred or bigotry or racism or sexism, mm-hmm. I think that giving an opponent the, uh, the freedom of speech and the loudest microphone possible, especially if I disagree with him or her, is exactly what I want if I want to actually get my message across. Because it, it, it should be a, a conversation based on facts right. and, um, and data, um, not emotion. So I, I think that pushing aside people that we disagree with is dangerous. So I would, I would, I would bring Chris Stewart. Let's kick Elon Musk off and put Chris Stewart. Chris Stewart. And I think, I mean, I have to agree with you there. It's always, it's good to have balance, especially here. We tend to kind of get trapped in an echo chamber sometimes, but also the 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 whole like geopolitics fellows thing is like a great space for that, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's structured. There's you know there's yeah. thought put into it. There's kind of like a uh, you know, a rubric, so to speak, throughout the whole semester. They kind of have to follow. There's discussion groups. It's more intimate. It's not this, like, one one and done big, um, you know, talk that kind of gets everyone riled up. I think yeah. that's actually, um, you know, not a bad idea. And they do a great job, I think, of, of really balancing okay. between, mm-hmm. you know, the – I mean, we had Trump's communication director and Ron Bonjan and then others, mm-hmm. you know, I think – so – uh, yeah, I think they have traditionally done a really good job of getting yeah. kind of that journalist figure and then like a couple from the Republican Party, a couple from the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's been really well. interesting and definitely really eye-opening, I think. Which um, complicated everything. So really bad. <laughs> yeah, really bad. <laughs> our 40 time is really going to increase as a whole. I do really appreciate that. I think that that's a, yeah. uh, you know, a value add for sure for geopolitics. Yeah. So, Jenny, if you're listening... You know, I know your G uh, politics is coming, finalizing the fellows list. You know, soon these were our suggestions. I hope we helped. Yeah, hope we helped. So, um, yeah, guys, um, just want to wrap up. You know, the spring is coming. Spring edition is coming. You know, spring podcasts are coming. Spring flowers are coming. You know, <laughs> the cherry blossoms are coming. It's a little too early. <laughs> November twenty. Yeah, you know, we still gotta get through. Uh, yeah, we still have to get past winter, winter lager before we get to spring brews. Um, so, um, you know, just, you know, thoughts on the spring, you know, what's to come, you know, anything you guys want to kind of throw out there, you know. Spring editor? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we in the spring edition have been working hard this semester to, to do lots of outreach and, and really um, sell our theme of uncertainty 
try to create some buy-in. Um, we've tried to really make it a, a broad and accessible theme. And I think we've um, done a pretty good job. We've, we've kind of talked about how politics are in flux, institutions. We touched on that in this um, podcast, but also industry itself mm-hmm. um, and, and trust in, in public um, service offices. And, and so we really kind of opened it up. We're hoping to receive submissions, not just on domestic politics, which we've talked a lot about, but also international um, international politics, international organizations. So um, yeah, our, our deadline's coming up in January. If you're listening and you have a, a paper written, please submit it. Um, go on our website and, and find all the details. But yeah, I think it's gonna be an interesting year. I like how we are kind of uh, following up um, with our, our last year's spring edition. So there'll be some kind of conversation between uncertainty and disruption. And hopefully we'll tease out some really um, profound insights and um, we never know what we're gonna get, but it's always a good learning experience. Um, so we're looking forward to lots of good conversations to uh, continue throughout the spring and then it will culminate in the online publication of our spring edition um, around April 5th. So stay tuned. Cool. Uh, anything from our managing audience? Uh, I think that pretty much covers that. I'm really looking forward to seeing the submissions and of course we have in addition to the spring edition uh, we have quite a few kind of articles in the pipeline on really interesting topics ranging from uh, clean energy. Actually, one of uh, our McCourt, fellow McCourt students got to go to the UN conference on climate change in mm-hmm. Bonn, Germany and wrote an article about it. Um, and it's, uh, it's really fascinating kind of the role that cities are taking on and sort of this, again, era of uncertainty and um, sort of lack of or just changing leadership at sort of the national level and how cities are now sort of taking the reins on some of these global issues. Um, so that's going to be coming soon along with, you know, an uh, article on immigration mm-hmm. and um, a kind of worker displacement. Um, so, you know, we're, of course, working really hard on the spring edition and we'll have be having kind of thematic uh, events and articles and podcasts on uncertainty throughout the spring. But... Um, of course, we'll have regular programming as well in terms of um, some of the articles that our uh, esteemed McCourt staff are going to be working on. So stay tuned stay for tuned. updates on the website as well. A lot of good stuff coming up. Yeah. Yeah, stay tuned. Podcast going to drop in the spring. Um, you know, we'll continue with our fellow series and we'll talk to you know our spring fellows. As Colin Kaepernick, first up. Colin Kaepernick, first up. <laughs> uh, you know, and then you know, we'll, as Captain Mitch, we'll talk. You know, we'll do the uncertainty series and we'll get some good guests. Um, so expect a lot of content in the spring. Um, so uh, I think we appreciate you guys. You know, listening. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for you know, senior staff for uh, sitting around and, so and, and coming yeah, together. Yeah, that's great. So um, to our listeners, you know, this is our last podcast of the fall. So Merry good Christmas. With, good luck with finals. Uh, good luck with finals. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Festivus. Happy, happy, Festivus. Festivus. <laughs> happy New Year. Mm-hmm. Uh, happy time off from school. Happy yeah. time off from school. <laughs> you know, uh, all those things, you know, enjoy. Um, you know, we appreciate all of you listening, and we'll hope to hear from you. And have, hope to hear that you're listening in the spring. Sorry. See you soon, everybody. Cheers.